Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Donna Lowry from GPB's Lawmakers, filling in for Bill Nygut. Thanks for joining us. A reminder that you can log on to the GPB Twitter page right now. And not only hear us, you can see us too. We're streaming live and we'll monitor your comments there. And you can also comment um, on our Facebook page, possibly. We'll see. Let's meet our guests. Amy Steigerwald is a professor of political science at Georgia State University and has been on with me before, and so I'm excited that you're here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I love our all-girls group here. Definitely. Also with us is Karen Owen. She is an associate professor of political science at the University of West Georgia. We're Thank glad you. you're here. Thank you for having yeah, me. It's nice meeting you. And I'm glad this, la- I watch, I read your stories, Tamar Hallerman, in the AJC. You're the Washington reporter and you're in Atlanta. So I I'm am. glad you're here. Here to run the Peachtree Road Race tomorrow. That's exciting. That's very exciting. I'm going to watch. I am not <laughs> going to, I am not going to be, I take my daughter to the uh, road race. I take her to the MARTA station and then I go back to bed. Smart. All righty. Let's get right to it. Immigration news. Uh, which is big. There's a lot going on today. The latest is that the acting secretary of Homeland Security has ordered an investigation into offensive posts on Facebook by people who work for his department. So we're, we'll see what that, uh, what comes of that. We'll hear more about that. But closer to home, the controversy over migrant children continues. Human Health and Human Services is looking for five shelters to house 500 unaccompanied minors under the age of 17 and several metro Atlanta cities are under consideration including Carrollton and I know the University of West Georgia is there Karen so tell us if you're hearing anything about this well um, I have not heard specifically anyone mention um, anyone looking or visiting into Carrollton I have not but I could understand maybe why the Carroll County area or any of these parts of Southwest Atlanta are being, you know, examined because there is available property and there will be resources probably for some of those requirements that um, Health and Human Services and the Department of Homeland Security are looking at for the area. And tomorrow they want quite a bit of space. Yeah, a little bit of context here. I mean, for years we've been hearing all these reports about the surge of unaccompanied migrants spilling across the the southern southern border and lately especially all these, you know, reports of really horrible conditions at a lot of our border stations in Texas and in the Southwest. So HHS, which is tasked with caring for these children um, before they can be connected with relatives who already live in the U.S., they're, they're looking for spots to put them. Initially, they were looking at military bases, including Fort Benning down near Columbus. Turns out they're not going to do that, that they're talking about putting folks in Oklahoma at a base there. But now we know about this because yesterday the, the news was that the government's looking at five different proposed areas, most of them in the South. There's this, this area in Georgia where they're looking for, you know, not only a place for these kids to stay, but classrooms, space, yards, you know, for for kids to stay um, as well. So it'll be a while. And they'll be there. They're hoping to to open it about this time next year and have them there for 20 years. I mean, they want a space that is available for 20 years. Amy, how how, what do you think the reaction is going to be from the general area, you know, because they're talking about Atlanta, well, Southwest Atlanta, Fayetteville, Union City, as I mentioned, Carrollton, to to having this spotlight with the migrant still children. That's going to be an interesting to see what the response is. I mean, certainly there's a number of leaders. Uh, for example, uh, Congressman John Lewis has been down on the border uh, going to the camps that are happening. And I think there's a couple of different levels here that on the one hand, right, there is always going to be on some level the need to take care of particularly unaccompanied migrant children who are coming across the border and need shelter. They need shelter. They need sustenance. They need health care. And the question is, where are we doing it? And one of the things that we're seeing is that right now uh, the section of HHS that is responsible for that doesn't have anywhere near the amount of space that they need. And the other part of it is that uh, where a lot of the children are being kept right now and what's causing a lot of the concerns on the border is that they're actually being kept in CBP detention facilities as opposed to the more long-term care. And the CBP detention facilities, you're not supposed to be housed there, particularly for children, for longer than 72 hours. And they're very bare bones. 
concerns. They don't have things like classrooms. They certainly aren't uh, worried about space to go out and play. And some of the concern is what do you do, particularly with the children who um, have come across are unaccompanied and do not have a parent or legal guardian already in the United States. And so some of the issue is, is who trying to find someone to care for them and what happens in that intermediate part. Yeah. And the, you're talking about 167 jobs. So it's not a lot of jobs, but th there may be some interest in just having them because of that tomorrow. And it creates a, a awkward political dynamic for a lot of these politicians from the areas as well. I mean, there, there certainly is that kind of not in my backyard sentiment, but but at the same time, you see the reports about how awful conditions are at a lot of these border facilities as well. And I think people realize there is kind of a moral imperative to take care of these kids. Um, you know, there there is the jobs aspect, but there's also, you know, if you're a political leader, you want everything to go really well in your area and, and what if there is you know a bad situation that pops up and then that becomes a political liability for you um you know see so i haven't seen a ton of our leaders in washington talk about this as um fort benning was was floated as a possibility i think people were just kind of quietly waiting to see how it was going to pan pan out and we really haven't heard much from from folks since yesterday when this announcement came out and the fact that they're looking at some areas that sound like they may be a more appealing than a fort benning than a you know, barracks or for children in particular, I think is going to, to um, people are going to like that a lot more. Yeah. yeah. So we do know that Congressman John Lewis, he was one of the people who toured the shelter in Homestead, Florida yesterday. And afterward, he told the press that he, the experience deeply moved him. And, but let's hear a little bit more about what he had to say. I've been deeply moved by what I have seen, what I have observed. And I will go back to Washington, D.C. within the next few days, much more determined to hold on to something I've been believing in for some time. And when you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, you have to say something. You have to do something. Now, Tamara, uh, now how are these visits from the members of Congress playing out in Washington? Sure. Well, you know, this has become kind of a, a must, a must see for a lot of the Democratic presidential candidates, a handful more than them, like 10 or 12 of them swung through there as they were going to the Miami debates. And, and we've seen over the last few days during the congressional recess, a lot of the more progressive members of Congress, including John Lewis, um, going down there and all of them came out, you know, talking about how troubled they were by by what they saw, the, the conditions there, talking to a lot of the kids who were there, kind of the, the way that they were being being treated. Um, you know, Congress just passed a $4.6 billion emergency aid bill um, to kind of deal with the situation there. And John Lewis, if I remember correctly, was one of um, a couple dozen more progressive members who voted against it because he, he wasn't happy with some of the provisions in there. It might be a while before Congress tackles this again. There's a must-pass spending uh, bill at, at the end of September that's coming up. So that might be the next chance we really see that they'll be able to act on this. Well, the other thing we know is the president has warned of mass raids on undocumented immigrants following the two-week delay, and that is supposed to happen after the holiday. So, Karen, I'm wondering, are the Democrats trying to draw attention to the issue in advance of these possible ICE raids by the Trump administration? I think it's probable that that's what they're working on. I mean, this recess opportunity right here at the 4th of July allows them to leave Washington to go out to visit to see exactly what is happening, to understand the money that they're you know, have appropriated to go to this, what it means. And then I think they can utilize this to bring attention to it, to talk about it so that if the Trump administration goes through with this, they have a counter argument of, hey, if we're raiding and we're sending them, look what's happening at our board, this humanitarian crisis that we have. Yeah. And Amy, Atlanta is one of 10 cities targeted mm -hmm. for these raids. Um, how do you think Mayor Bottoms is likely to handle it? And she's mentioned she's in solidarity with the immigrant communities, but what do you expect? It's going to be interesting to see what happens. I mean, at least currently what we've heard from Mayor Bottoms is that she is not uh, necessarily in favor of having Atlanta police force aid uh, ICE officials coming in and rounding up. It sounds as though she's not necessarily going to offer, for example, Atlanta jails and facilities to hold people because that's some of the question is that when people are, in fact, if, if, they, if they come through and ICE does this, then the question is where are they being held? Part of the issue that actually contributes to the issues that CBP 
key is happening and that um, what Congressman Lewis was talking about is because the ICE facilities are also full. And so that's why ICE relies on uh, local communities to hold the people that they have until they're able to uh, to hold them in detention until they're actually able to uh, remove them. And sort of the other question is, is what do they mean by um, sort of the streamlining and fast forwarding of the actual deportation um, events themselves? Um, it's a huge, right, uh, sort of mass of uh, people that are necessary for this, not just the ICE agents, but also those that are transporting people, uh, the courts themselves in order to have the hearings that would then require that would lead to the deportations and things like that. And so it's a little unclear exactly what's going on um, and what's going to happen there. But I think that you are going to see a lot of pushback. I mean, I I think strategically and politically done many of these cities that have been uh, noted by President Trump that he is targeting in this are those cities where um, the residents of those cities did not, in fact, support him in the last election. And so there's also some concerns of this being almost a kind of political retribution. Sure. Tomorrow, I'm curious about how all of this played out in Washington two weeks ago before the delay. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the Democratic offices were expressing a lot of alarm about all of this. And you even saw some, like John Lewis's office, that send out guidance to folks, you know, this this is what you should do in case you, you know, in case a border agent or a nice agent shows up at your door. And we saw a lot of Democratic candidates for Congress tweet out that information as well, send that to their, their mailing list. So it's it's clearly an issue that I think a lot of these Democrats who are hoping to, to win in Atlanta's suburbs are definitely going to seize on people like Brenda Lopez up in the 7th District. She She's a uh, state house member up in Gwinnett County, and and you know she's an immigration attorney who immigrated to the U.S. from Mexico when she was five. Um, you know she's made clear she's absolutely going to run on this issue. So this is not the last we are going to hear of it. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll see what it's not going to happen July fifth. I'm sure we won't see eight raids then, but uh, maybe next week. On a somewhat related note, in the sense that it's dealing with another country, a federal lawsuit says Georgia is discriminating against Puerto Ricans who apply for driver's licenses by treating them differently from other U.S. citizens. And the allegations say that they're forcing them to take tests, that they're seizing their documents, that they're quizzing them on details about their island, and it's drawing comparisons to the days of Jim Crow. Um, we have some sound from an attorney for the center, the Southern Center on Civil Rights, Jerry Weber, and he talks about the specifics. We learned that uh, Puerto Rican residents who were now living in Georgia and seeking to transfer their driver's licenses to Georgia were subject to a, a different set of hoops and hurdles in order to have their driver's license transferred than persons from any other state, Ohio or Illinois or wherever. Um, they were required to have a test where they understood uh, certain aspects of Puerto Rico, including what a native frog was of Puerto Rico. And uh, there, there were delays and denials of their request for a driver's license. And their documents, their birth certificate, et cetera, weren't even given back to them. Um, and so we filed this lawsuit to uh, fix this practice uh, because Puerto Rican uh, citizens should be treated like anyone else uh, in the United States. Yeah. Tamar, you actually have some breaking news on this. Yeah, my, my colleague Dave Wickert is reporting that the governor of, of Puerto Rico has just asked Brian Kemp to end what, quote, the disturbing irregularities uh, unquote, cited in the lawsuit. Um, and, and so far, we have yet to hear from the governor's office. So oh, right. breaking news is, is the last 20 minutes. Okay. We love that. We love that. <laughs> Amy, <laughs> your, your, your background is constitutional law. Tell us a little bit. How are citizens of Puerto Rico supposed to be treated as U.S. citizens? What's the difference? Is there a difference? They are U.S. citizens. And so for purposes of anything that is happening, the, uh, the uh, Full Faith and Credit Act or Full Faith and Credit provision of the Constitution stipulates that how citizens of one state are treated, uh, that state is supposed to treat all other citizens of any of the other states the same way. So it doesn't matter if you're from Alabama. There's not different laws that apply to you when you go to Georgia and vice versa. And so that applies uh, to anyone who is a U.S. citizen. Doesn't 
doesn't matter if you're a resident of a state, and it doesn't matter if you're a resident of one of the territories, which, of course, Puerto Rico is um, under our territorial jurisdiction as opposed to being another state. Um, D.C. also, right? D.C. residents sort of fall in this similar sort of limbo land. They're citizens of the United States. They're not citizens of a separate state. Uh, but again, if you're a resident of D.C., you're supposed to be treated the same when you come to Georgia, if you go to California, et cetera. And what um, it appears is that there is a directive that was put out by DDS, the Department of Driving Services, that treats uh, Puerto Rican uh, citizens or res former residents of Puerto Rico um, and their documents differently than those that are coming out of the other states. And what's somewhat important about this is that uh, there had been a act uh, um, that was passed uh, in uh, 2015 called the Real ID Act, which changed and stipulated how it was that uh, documents were to be provided, what documents would be accepted, uh, and it was put out across all of the United States. And so somewhat of what we're seeing here is that this directive seems to somewhat sort of override the Real ID Act and suggest that even if documents are being given to Georgia from Puerto Rico that are in compliance with the Real ID Act, that they're still not um, accepting them for purposes of the driver's license and they're giving them additional scrutiny. Uh, the other part that comes up in this lawsuit that um, is kind of an, is a really sort of an interesting question is that the Real ID Act also applies to um, state-issued IDs, which are not driver's licenses, and the uh, plaintiff in this case was not able to get a driver's license, but was able, using the same documents, to be able to get the state-issued identification. And so there again becomes sort of this question of why was it that the documents were accepted under one part and not another? And also, why is it that the Puerto Rican documents are being flagged in a way that other ones aren't? Because this plaintiff um, was not only that they took them and didn't give them back, but they also um, accused him of fraud. And part of what they're asking for is what about them is fraudulent because they haven't also explained what about them is causing concern on that level. That's right. He was arrested. His name is uh, Cabin. I think it's pronounced Kevin Gonzalez. He applied for the license in Hinesville in October mm -hmm. of 2017. He received a text, which I thought was interesting, from the department asking him to come in to the Savannah office for an interview. And when he arrived, he was arrested on allegations that he provided these false documents. They, and then they... Um, they they put him in jail and uh, he has not been able to get a license to this point and i'm i'm curious karen what your thoughts on the fact that porter that our state is treating Puerto Ricans differently from others from out of state coming in to get driver's I'm, licenses. I think when i first read the report i was a little shocked that here in Georgia that there are government officials that are reading this directive that are saying there is some distinction for Puerto Ricans when they are a part of the U.S. Um, I was going to ask Amy quickly, if I can, do you know in the directive if there is something related to our other territories or was this a specific directive toward Puerto Ricans? Because I was just thinking like if could this have possibly been someone who showed up from Guam and they would have been questioned further? Does so, it say? Unfortunately, the lawsuit doesn't mention it applying to any of the other territorial um, provisions. What it does note are the, de uh, the fact that this directive in some of the places does specifically note Puerto Rico. So it's not that it says sort of territorial license holders, but for example, it says that, quote, Puerto Rico license holders must present all required documents and must pass knowledge and road exams before they're able to get a Georgia license, which is in fact not true of someone who has moved from another state. Um, so if you move here from California and you have a valid California driver's license, they don't make you retake the various um, exams. And the other ones, again, all seem to be stipulating only towards that. Unfortunately, in the link that I was able to find to the lawsuit, it didn't have the appendix, and so I'm not able to read the directive, and I can't find it online otherwise, but maybe I, someone else knows. I am surprised that this is very much towards Puerto Ricans, and there's mm -hmm. not some other discussion, because if you moved here from Florida, or if you moved here from another state, you are recognized, and you do not have to take the additional examination, so it does just really surprise me. Well, it's certainly putting a, a spotlight on Georgia,
And uh, from what we heard from Tamar, um, we're going to maybe have to hear from the governor on we, this uh, issue. So uh, we just got the, the full statement from the governor of Puerto Rico, Ricardo Rossello. Um, and here's part of it, quote, this is absurd. Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens and cannot be treated unequally in any U.S. jurisdiction. The government of Puerto Rico takes these allegations very seriously. And if true, I ask Georgia Governor Brian Kemp to address the disturbing irregularities immediately. The U.S. citizens of Puerto Rico cannot be subject to illogical and illegal requirements when, when procuring government services. Um. I expect that we um, we may not hear until after the holiday from the governor, but he's going to have to answer that. And I, I don't know what the population of Puerto Ricans are in Georgia, but there are some states like, as you know, New York, where there are huge um, Puerto Rican populations. So I think we're going to hear more about this. But right now it's time to take a quick quick break and get that out of the way. But coming up, we're going to talk about the delay and, and the federal disaster relief. Tamar can talk about that. And uh, some of those uh, farmers down in South Georgia have been waiting and waiting, and they may be waiting some more. And then also the defiance by the former press secretary for um, for Kasim Reed. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the open records violations she faces. You're listening to Political Rewind on GPB. We're back in one minute. Hey, this is David Green, host of Morning Edition. I'm here to talk with you about that poking feeling, the one that keeps reminding you to support public radio. You can support the programs you love by donating your used vehicle. That old car or truck could be worth hundreds of dollars to this station. All you have to do is call, and you might even receive a tax deduction. Go to gpb.org slash cars or call 877-GPB-1-CAR and thanks. On the next Fresh Air. I don't love you anymore. I want a divorce. We talk with Sarah Jessica Parker, the star of the HBO comedy drama series Divorce, which is beginning its third season about a couple starting new lives after separating. Parker also starred in Sex and the City. We'll talk about her shows, being a child star, and the Me Too Time's Up movement. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 here on GPB and online at gpbnews.org or ask your smart speaker to play GPB. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Donna Lowry from GPB's Lawmakers, filling in today for Bill Nygut. And I am pleased to be joined today by Amy Steigerwald from Georgia State University, Karen Owen from the University of West Georgia, and Tamar Hallerman from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. So now we're going to get into something that Tamar is very familiar with, a delay in federal disaster aid. So Hurricane Michael hit last October, but it's now July, and Georgia farmers are still looking for relief, even though Congress passed the $19 billion disaster, disaster relief package last month. Tamar, you did a report in the AJC on how farmers have been waiting, and they may have to wait much longer. Exactly. So so the president signed this, this big bill in early June and released the federal funding, but now it has to kind of trickle through about two dozen federal agencies. And, you know, it's, it's a bureaucracy. It, it takes a long time. And each agency has its own set of directives that it has to follow from Congress. But not only that, they have to set their own guidelines about who's eligible for this money based on Congress's guidelines and, um, you know, how fast that, that money is going to come out. Sometimes you need to work with the White House to, to develop a lot of these regulations um, to get this money out. And if, if the past is any measure of this, it could be very well be months. It could very well be October 2019, a whole year after this storm hits before we see it again. Um, so we just don't know at this point. Is that typical? Is this, is, you know, yes. because the package is so large? Yes. The farmers don't understand that, I'm sure, who are still struggling. Sure. And and a lot of them have had a really tough go of it over the last few years. I mean, low global commodity prices, these new tariffs that have come through, um, you know, all sorts of things. You had this historic, you know, storm that caused generational damage in some cases to pecan farmers, timber farmers. Um, and for a lot of them, it's kind of too late. Planting season for a lot of crops was earlier in the spring. Folks already kind of had to make their tough financial choices. Some farmers I interviewed had, um, you know, mortgaged off parts of their, their farms. Some had sought loans elsewhere. Others sat out of the planting season entirely. So, I mean, they're excited to get some sort of money. Uh, you know, some have talked about maybe buying equipment that they passed on, you know, replacing earlier in the year, you know, that could help and could help the rural economy, but they might not see that money until the fall. 
Yeah, you you mentioned that you that there was some celebrating by farmers when the bill was signed, and yet there's they didn't have any any idea they're going to have to wait so long. I bet exactly, yeah. and and some of our state officials are are kind of working with their federal counterparts to to kind of show them, okay, this is where we need the money. This is how you know you should structure the program this way to help us out but we don't even know yet what these agencies are going to do yeah that um karen i'm thinking this will change the the face or the the look of agriculture in the state of georgia for for some time to come i think so and i think that we can expect to see that farmers who were very supportive in parts of our state of the Trump administration, there's probably still supportive that he had signed a package to get money here, but the delay then will start to affect how they view the government in general, like who is really helping us and what is the crisis? And, I, you know, are we part of what is looked at in needing help and, and how they will view all of the programming and what can do, um, impact them? I think that will be playing out as well. Yeah, and we're in the midst of the hurricane season right now. So that package wasn't just for Georgia, of course, it was for a lot of disasters. So I can imagine that there are, uh, people are pretty anxious right now, Amy. I think they're incredibly anxious. I mean, part of what we have is that there's still, right, lots of areas which were hit last year, which not only are trying to rebuild, but they're also trying to prepare for what might happen this year. Um, again, there are concerns, right, we saw the earliest uh, sort of uh, scene uh, formation ever in uh, the Atlantic that already came this year, sort of before uh, the season even started. So there's some concern that it's again going to be a really strong um, hurricane season. And so some of this is, is that if we don't like if, if areas are already harmed then they're certainly not going to have supports put in place to come through and it's again this question of who exactly can they even get the money from what monies are there available and also which is perhaps just as crucial who precisely is the money going to be allocated to and a lot of those decisions haven't been made yet and that's its own real debates both on sort of a policy and a political level yeah i know uh, com the uh, ag commissioner gary black says they're all ready to go but when when will they be ready to go they're ready for the money but when will that actually happen That's exactly and I mean I just think all of this kind of going off of what um, you know Karen and Amy were saying I mean this just kind of shows you know already distrusting Congress was low I mean Congress annually gets approval ratings below cockroaches and all sorts of funny <laughs> things but this shows you know disaster relief after big storms for a long time that that was a bipartisan thing that was considered really untouchable if a community was in need you signed off on it because it could be in your backyard next time but but this has shown that Congress can't even get behind the most basic things yeah. I mean, so, I was just saying, I, I traveled in southwest Georgia in late fall, and there were so many homes damaged and tarps on roofs. So it's not just the farmers not being able to plant, but you have people really where their lives have been disrupted and need help, whether it's, you know, block money coming in from H, um, from HUD or other agencies. I mean, this is affecting more than just, I feel like, the seeds being planted and the farm equipment. Yeah. Definitely. And also just one other point to go off of, I mean, something that I was really struck by in Tamar's article about also, you know, not only of support for government and the idea that we already have sort of a negative view of bureaucracy, but was um, the description by the um, USDA Undersecretary for Farm Production and Conservation, where he talked about sort of all the things that they still have to do, many of them which were somewhat surprising that they hadn't already done it. He was like, oh, we're gathering information to find out, like, who's been harmed it's like wait you you haven't gotten that information yet i mean many of like some of these crises happened quite a while ago then they're talking about having to you know they got to draft the guidelines they have to have them pass by the white house budget office then they have to develop software so that people can apply and it's a little you know again it's 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 laying out all the steps that have to be taken but there's also i think some concern about how much things have been pushed off and that they haven't already been preparing for the possibility that this was coming. And the, the what happened in Georgia happened in October. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. So I'm sure we'll be talking more about this. And thanks, uh, Tamar, for your, your uh, reporting on all of this. Let's change gears a little bit. Um, locally with uh, Atlanta, Mayor Kasim Reed's former press secretary, she is uh, prepared to face trial, apparently, if she has to, over the o Georgia Open Records Act. Jenna Garland, she declined a plea offer in her, her criminal case of alleged violations of, of the Georgia Open Records Act. She's accused of asking a subordinate to delay handing over public records to the local media, including the AJC, and they... They may have contained information damaging to Reed and others, so she faces no fine, of course, if she if she goes on further with this. And no, uh, she faces a 
Now, let me correct that. She faces a fine, no jail time. But um, I'm, I'm curious as a, a journalist, Tamar, uh, why do you think she'd rather go to trial on this? I mean, she's still defending her innocence and saying that she hasn't done anything wrong. Um, you know, the reason we're following this so closely is because this is the first time that anybody's being prosecuted under the open records law. And, you know, I think it's an issue of, of public importance. You want, you know, sunshine in your government. You, you'd like to think that, that you know, your elected officials are, are being responsive to, um, you know, calls for transparency. So, um, you know, it's possible she could take what's called a blind plea a little bit later. But for now, it looks like her, her folks want to fight on. I'm sure this is something they're going to talk about in journalism classes uh, for for years to come. But also what's interesting to me, I used to work for the school systems for Cobb County Schools and Fulton County Schools. And, you know, the the open records requests from the media were much less than from everybody else. And so I'm wondering what kind of chilling effect this might have on other requests for open records, Amy. Um, I don't know that this would have a a chilling effect on the request. I think in many ways it's going to go really the other way, that hopefully it's going to have a chilling request on uh, those in government refusing to fill them. Um, Because... Right. Open record requests are really quite important. And I think what is probably here is that the message being sent is, look, we're going to take seriously when we have clear evidence that someone in government is refusing to comply with the law and release records that are, in fact, able um, to be released. Because you're right. Right. Records requests come in constantly on lots of things and they're necessary. Right. People need them in the school system. If you want to be able to come up with an IEP for your child, you're going to have to request certain records and disciplinary screenings, right, medical records, right, other such things that are going on and being able to do this. And so that's part of why it's so important that it's not just about transparency in the sense of journalism, but about individual residents who have things that they need to get done and it requires information that they can only get from the government. Yeah, and Karen, I'm thinking it gets back to that distrust that we've talked a little bit that Tamar mentioned. People distrusting, uh, have this distrust for the government already. Yes, and I I was like, what my mind went to is there's going to have to be more meetings amongst governmental officials about what it means when an open request comes in. Like if there's an open record request, you do not delay. How do you handle this properly? Like a refresher of what that looks like. So for us who teach like public policy and public administration, it's really emphasizing again to our students and to the public that these civil servants are required to provide this information and that provides more legitimacy of your government and more trust in your government when you know you can make that request and they will properly respond. And I think we're going to see more of that call to make sure that agencies and officials are very much aware of how they need to act properly. Yeah, tomorrow I'm thinking this is going, if it does go to trial, we're going to learn a lot about the process uh, when it comes to open records and maybe a little bit more about uh, what's going on with the city of Atlanta than they want us to know. Oh, sure. And and Mayor Reed, who's been pretty quiet throughout all of this. And, you know, there's plenty other, um, you know, tentacles to all of this, too, you know, that are that are in front of different courts. But uh Yeah, interesting times. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you, ladies. On that, we're going to get another break out of the way. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the president's elaborate, expensive Salute to America Fourth of July celebration, including the Georgia Connection, because there is one, plus a couple of items related to our roadways as we get into this busy holiday. You're listening to Political Rewind on GPB. Now is the perfect time to clean out the garage and get rid of that car you no longer need. You'll face the coming months with a fresh start, and by donating your used car to GPB, you'll even get a tax deduction. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or donate securely online at gpb.org slash cars. And thanks. The Labor Department says California's Imperial Valley has the highest unemployment rate in the United States. Many of the people there are now too old to be farm workers, and retail jobs aren't available. Sears closed down. Um, We have other stores closing at the mall that had employed a lot of these families, and they're out of jobs. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. That story this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. 4 till 7 today on GPB and online at gpbnews.org, or ask your smart speaker to play GPB. 
Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Donna Lowry from GPB's Lawmakers, filling in today for Bill Nygut. We are joined today by Amy Steigerwald from the Georgia State University, Karen Owen from the University of West Georgia, and Tamar Hallerman from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. So, a heavy display tomorrow is expected at the president's 4th of July military parade. He's been planning this for a while. Military vehicles from Fort Stewart, Georgia, will be on display at this Salute to America celebration on the uh, National Mall. Among them, two Abrams tanks traveled. They traveled by rail, be- rail beds from um, Georgia to D.C. Actually, there were six vehicles altogether, but these two tanks two of them, they each weigh between 60 and 70 tons, (laughs) Abrams tanks do, and that there is concern in D.C. that they will damage roads and buildings. Nobody knows where to put them. Apparently, the National Mall used to be a swamp area, so they're really concerned. And and this I loved. In a tweet, uh, the city council said, tanks but no tanks tomorrow. (laughs) Let's talk a little bit. what's, What's the feeling in Washington about this? I mean, it depends on who you talk to, but certainly, you know, something to think about is this is a city that went for Hillary Clinton by like 96%. It's so blue. It's so blue. And so, you know, th- there's a question of, of the kind of crowd that, that Trump is going to want to get. You know, he he did spend some time dwelling on, on the size of his inauguration crowd, um, and I'm sure his folks are going to try and fill the, the area around the Lincoln Memorial, which is where he's going to speak. Um, you know, as much as, as possible and really put on a show. There's been some controversy about this VIP section that they're going to have in the front. Um, you know, the only people giving out tickets are the White House and the RNC. There are a lot of folks saying, well, you're using public resources for this um, event. It, there sh- it should not be a ticketed thing. It should not be, uh, you know, for people who, who give political favors to your campaign. Um, and so that's been an issue as well. Yeah. And the other the other aspect to this is the money. The National Park Service is already in debt. And they're talking about it being about $2.5 million coming out of that agency in particular. Um, I, I'm wondering, Amy, what, what's the reaction to this cost? Are, are you hearing anything? That seems to be where a lot of the concern is. And some of the issue is, number one, a lot of this did come up really very quickly, right? There were sort of these intimations that something was going to happen. And we only really this week found out kind of any information that there was going to be sort of a separate fireworks display, et cetera. Because it should be noted there that every year there is, in fact, a large celebration that happens on the National Mall. Uh, the Salute to America that's partly by PBS and also by uh, the U.S. Congress. And there's a concert. There's a large fireworks display that takes place uh, over the reflecting pool. And so part of what's going on here is trying to get that information. And a lot, at least, of the reports that I've seen have suggested that when there have been questions asked about costs, there's a lot of uh, sort of talk to the White House, talk to the Department of Defense, talk to the Department of Interior. And so the only number that we've really heard is that $2.5 million in the fees. But I think that's one of the issues, is that all of this does, in fact, cost a lot of money. There's a question of how many military officers are going to be involved in this, which also means they're being diverted from other issues. A very real issue is the one about the tanks. The D.C. streets are already bad. They definitely cannot <laughs> support tanks, especially because, remember, tanks don't have tires. They have these tracked rollers, which will sort of really harm um, the asphalt. And especially near the Lincoln Memorial, what they're concerned about is that there's underground rooms. And so they also want to ensure that there's enough support, foundational support, that even if they're parked near that, that it's not going to cause those rooms to collapse. So it's not as though it's sort of a a simple thing to bring in a tank. Yeah, I want to talk about uh, the political part of this, Karen, a little bit. Uh, It could be an interesting parade in that sense, because one group of veterans, uh, apparently, they plan to hand out the US, some USS John McCain T-shirts to the crowd. Um, the president says that it's not an, a political event, but isn't it hard to keep politics out of this? I think so. And even the latest report I heard from Kellyanne Conway, his advisor was that it was going to be a lot about patriotism and the holiday and American independence. But yes, we're also going to talk about the administration's work in the economy and how well this administration does. And that's turning partisan. So I think anyone who sees the president who's normally not involved in the Capitol 4th event is now involved. It is interjecting politics into place. So you're going to have a lot of other groups come in. One thing I am interested always with Trump is he's very fascinated with the military, we know. 
And I feel like this is another show of that. He always likes to have the generals around him in their uniform. Again, he's got tanks, things that show that military prowess, which he's really proud of. And I think that you're going to see, though, you know, there are a lot of VIPs for the Capitol Fourth, closer to the Capitol side, where you have members of Congress and their families. But there are a lot of families from the U.S. who travel to D.C. for this particular holiday because it's so important for America and the independence and the idea that you're there for the celebration, the fireworks around these beautiful monuments. And that, I think, I hope is not lost in the rhetoric going on of what this new change will bring. Yeah, tomorrow. And, you know, the, the president has really defended all of this. Um, you know, he... he says it isn't going to cost a ton of money. His rationale is, is look, yeah, we need to celebrate the patriotism of America and all that. But he's saying, look, we already pay these pilots. We already own these airplanes. All that it would cost is the fuel to fly overhead. So he, he's called it all fake news and, and all of this. But one point of clarification for the, the Park Service, um, you know, the, the Interior Department is not necessarily in debt. That's not the word I, I would use. But I will say, you know, there's a $2 billion backlog of, of deferred maintenance in a lot of these national parks. Um, you know, trails that need to be fixed up, bathrooms that are broken that need to be rebuilt. And so for years, Congress hasn't been properly funding that, that list to, to cut down on that backlog. That's money that gets taken out from that maintenance account and, and gets diverted to this. So we still don't have a true sense of how much this is going to cost, especially for the military to get down there. Apparently, they're going to be flying Air Force One right overhead as uh, as he's about to, to step into the stage and the, uh, it's called the Blue Angels, right? The, right. the Air yeah. Force uh, yeah. elite fighter pilots are going to be flying over They're as pretty well. cool to watch, yeah. though. I know. So I'm going to be missing it. I'm here running Peachtree. I won't get to see it at all. But uh, it'll be interesting to see how many people come out. That it will be. So we're, we'll be talking about that, and I'm sure um, there'll be a lot to see on that. So well, let's switch, switch gears to something else. Uh, a tweet by the president today dealing with the census. So we've got the census on, census off. You know, the, the main thing is the question over the citizenship question. And the Supreme Court, of course, ruled last month. Um, blocking, putting that citizen, citizenship question on the census. And then the president said he might delay the census, and then it looked like it was going on, and whether it was print, be, the printing began or didn't pre- begin. But today he, he had a tweet that said anything that says that, it's, that they're not still looking into putting that citizenship question on is fake news. We call that fake news today. So um, he says things are going to move along. Amy, you're the constitutional expert. Um, I'd like you to weigh in on this. So the official report that has come from the Department of Justice, his administration, his administration (laughs) that was released yesterday is that they are moving forward with printing the census questionnaires that it will not include a a citizenship question and that they're not continuing their appeal uh, at the district court where the case was remanded to. Um, I'm would imagine that that was cleared at the highest levels and so that is in fact the position going forward that the government is adhering to um i think a separate question is how it is that sort of the question gets in there i mean there's a couple things that are going on here number one um the the census cannot be delayed in the sense that the constitution mandates that it shall take place which is the highest level of sort of legal uh authorization that there is of saying you're sort of an order you must do this what becomes tricky is that a lot, and this sort of really goes to things that we've all been talking about with legitimacy and authority and how much we respect it, almost all of our constitutional system and our sort of system of government is dependent upon the fact that we respect the legitimacy and authority of the various um actors in the government that say that you're going to have to do something. And so in this instance, that we respect the authority of the court, that the court has said at the moment, you're not allowed to put that question on there. And the answer sort of is, well, why would you comply? And a lot of times we say, well, because the court said so, because it has authority, because it has legitimacy. If someone doesn't comply with that, then the response is force. And that's really our only two options. There's sort of, you know, voluntary compliance due to authority and there is force. And the issue that comes is what if one branch of government, particularly the branch of government that controls the force, says we don't want to comply. 
And that is why for a lot of constitutional experts, they're getting really concerned about what happens if, in fact, the, gov- the president says that's great that the Supreme Court ruled that. I really don't care because then what the court would have to do is say, well, you're not allowed to do that. Like, you have to listen, and we could put you in jail. Yeah, and that sounds like what may be happening, because he did say the news reports about the Department of Commerce uh, dropping its quest to put the citizenship question on the ballot, that if anybody who says that is... um, is absolutely wrong that that is fake because they are the um, it is very important to get the answer to the question he says because of the importance of the question so he he they may be doing one thing he's got another plan I the problem we run into at times is that and this is really difficult as a political scientist to say <laughs> that it is not always clear if the president of the United States is entirely clear about what is going on in his own administration and the degree to which he's making those decisions. Um, I have a feeling that the letter that was released from the Department of Justice is likely the one that is being followed at the moment, which is in and of itself concerning on a number of levels, but that's what I think has happened. And and look, this is a president who, you know, we've seen over and over again that his instinct whenever confronted is to kind of dig in and and really fight to the death. He's not one to kind of give in, especially, you know, to another government entity like a court immediately. So that's why it was so surprising for a Mm -hmm. lot of us to see that memo from the Justice Department yesterday saying, no, you know, we're not, we're dropping it. Um, So on the one hand, it's not surprising. On the other hand, you know, this is your own administration. Well, Question for tomorrow, if I could. Is this an instance where, as sort of terrible as it sounds, that perhaps the Department of Justice was hoping that he was going to be distracted by the salute to America <laughs> and sort of not notice and they could just do that? Maybe. I mean, I, I, the I, that. I really distresses me that I'm even asking that question. But I mean, is there a sense in Washington that sometimes that's kind of what's happening? He, because, you know, that, that happened, you know, the Department of Justice came out yesterday and then it's today when it's finally like, oh, by the way. <laughs> I think you, you quietly you sense a lot of Republicans who, who want the president somehow sometimes to, you know, adhere to what his, you know, some of the more established institutions want to do. Um, and, and not kind of give in to his instincts sometimes to fight to the bitter death. But one thing to, to mention is just how long the census takes. Mm-hmm. You know, they really are going to begin, you know, they have 300 million some people to account for you know they really start in in april to to go through but you know parts of rural alaska really hard to get to parts you know they start in january so that's Mm -hmm. why they really have to start printing stuff off now and a a lot of it is going to be online right Aren't they asking people to to do it online? Karen? Yes, I was going to say I yeah. I read that the belief and the hope is that more people will be actually filling out their census form through the internet and online, and so that and then they'll be reaching those that maybe don't have it with the regular questionnaire and having census workers go to their homes, but for the vast majority, they're hoping that it, that will go quicker because of the internet. So we should note that I mean one of the issues that still sort of confronts, especially with something like the census, is there's you know a decent number of places in the United States where right, a majority of the population doesn't have access to the internet, doesn't own a computer, et cetera. And that's true even in places like Atlanta, right? Even though we sort of think of all of us as being wired, I mean, there's a lot of people that don't have home computers, don't have smartphones, don't have ready access to that. And so that's why those long forms are needed. Certainly in parts of rural Georgia with that. But I, I think I read something where 80 to 85% they're hoping will be online, we will do this online. My husband won't be one of them. He'll be asking me to do it. So uh, I understand that. Let's change gears real quickly with uh, the time we have left to talk about some road issues. And one of them is with the U.S. Uh, Senator Johnny Isaacson. He wants to slow truck trucks down. Um, this isn't not anything new. Uh, he has been pushing for this t- since 2015 when there were five Georgia Southern nursing students killed on I-16 um, after a speeding truck hit them. And what he wants to do is reduced the, reduce the speed limit for tractor trailers to 60 
five miles an hour. And I wondered, Tamar, how this might play out and in, in how this is playing out in Washington. Exactly. So his argument is that there are a lot of tractor trailers on the road already that have this special technology installed already in their trucks, which kind of limits the speed at 65, but a lot of them aren't using it. And there was a regulation being developed by the Department of Transportation all the way back, I believe, in 2011 that um, has just been delayed indefinitely just for, you know, even under Obama, um, delayed, 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 changed, delayed. Um, and so he's he's hoping to get this implemented. But this comes at a time when there's this sweeping directive from the Trump administration to cut down on all regulations. So, you know, it could face some pushback there among members of his base who really support the president. And Karen, how do you think it'll play out in Georgia? <laughs> on, uh, on 285. <laughs> well, I was going to say a lot of Georgians would probably be happy to see this limited speed because there is a lot of, you know, distracted driving now. And if you can get them slowing down, perhaps you would lessen the incidences of accidents. But again, I think a lot of supporters of the president are going to say, you told us fewer and fewer regulations and we can't get behind this right now. Okay. I want to talk about one other thing real quick, and that's that hands-free law. Apparently, uh, it's, you know, we've just had a birthday for it. One year with the hands-free law, 25,000 tickets the Georgia State Patrol gave out. That doesn't count those in individual jurisdictions, though. Um, Traffic fatalities are down. Auto collision insurance is down. So are we doing the right thing in Georgia? And can we all admit that uh, how we're doing when it comes to hands-free? I'll say it. I'll say it first. I've been pretty good with it. I'd say more than 80% of the time I'm probably hands-free. Every once in a while, you know, I have to pull my phone and like, what's going on there? But other than that, you know, you take it off the... uh, Oh, well, I've got one. Of, I've got an older car. So it, I, even though it goes through my speaker system, I do have to, for navigation purposes, I may have to touch it every once in a while. But uh, how about the rest of you, Amy? Uh, I'm a Jewish mother who's been yelling at people for years (laughs) not to be on their phones. Um, So so I was really excited when this law got passed. Um, I'm more guilty of at a red light using my tweezers. Um, But I feel really pretty strongly. And I've actually had like a Bluetooth thing for years. And the thing is, you can tell when somebody is on their phone, especially if they're like texting. They're not driving right. And you know that. They're on their phone. They're, they're on their phone. Karen? I was highly supportive of this and actually being a mother, too. I'm trying to set the role model example for my children, so I've been not using it. Mm-hmm. And I have been yelling at more people who yep. I see using it. Yeah. Yeah, and you still see it happen tomorrow. Well, I live in D.C. and I don't own a car, but whenever I'm down here, I forget about it and hold my phone in my hand on the steering wheel to look no. at the GPS and no. I see a cop and I'll just immediately drop the phone like, oh, no, remember it now. Oh, no. <laughs> that, uh, well, well, we'll see what happens with that. <laughs> they better not ban putting on makeup, though. <laughs> Okay, I hate I hate to say that. You know, you said the tweezers. I'm sorry, I had to bring that up because some of us do put a little powder on, or maybe I don't know. Anyway, it's interesting I mean, to see I'm how we're, it's yeah yeah. That- it's, it's good to see the numbers are coming in really well. One thing we wanted to correct as we wrap things up, but we said that the Blue Angels are there were part of the Air Force. They're actually part of the Navy, oh, and they go oops. yeah yeah. So the, the Navy actually has a lot of planes that come off their ships, and I have a nephew who's in the the Navy who can attest to that. It has been great having you guys here today. I think we're going to have uh, any plans for the holiday real quick. Anything? Uh, Just you're doing the race. Yes. Yeah, I'm doing the race, too. You're doing the race, too? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, Amy, Tamar, to doing Karen, Karen. I will be watching you. Karen, <laughs> yeah, and so will I from my bed. <laughs> that will do it for today's Political Rewind. I want to thank you all, uh, Amy Steigerwald and Karen Owen and Tamar Hallerman. And thank you to all of you out there for listening. Remember, if you missed any part of this show, you can still listen to it. Uh, if you liked it so much and you want to listen to it again, you can go to gpbnews.org or wherever you get your podcasts and we're taking friday off so our team can enjoy the long holiday how cool is that but we'll see you again on monday at two